Hey, thanks for checking out this sermon. It's designed to help you take your next step with Jesus. And if you haven't been able to make it to one of our campuses and participate in the time of giving, you could do so online through our website or by texting to give so that you can continue to participate in the mission that God has given us. We hope that God speaks to you through this sermon. It was the summer of 1967, summer of love. 100,000 young people had converged on the Haight-Ashbury district of San Francisco. The roads were clogged with big old buses that had been painted with flowers and vans full of hippies that had all come west. They had, they had quit their jobs. They had dropped out of school, wanting to come to San Francisco for the love in. The common theme among them all was a rejection of their parents' lifestyle and values, a real disdain for the Vietnam War, and a desire to experience life more fully, more, more lovingly, more differently in, in communal living. There were free concerts, free food, free housing, free medical care, Beatles, wrote the song, All You Need Is Love. This was a utopian thought that lasted all summer long and into the fall of 1967. But then it was 1968 and all hell broke loose. The war in Vietnam was escalated drastically and thousands of young men lost their lives that winter. In 100 cities across the United States, students protested, sometimes in violent clashes with the police and the National Guard. In April, shots rang out in Memphis, and Dr. King lay dead. In June, it was Bobby Kennedy in L.A. who was assassinated. The summer of love was long gone, giving way to one of America's worst years. Here we are now, 50 years later, in the same San Francisco Bay Area, believing more than ever that it really is love that we need, that, 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 that love really could change the world. If we would learn how to really love our neighbors, we would meet their greatest need. You know, we live here, and we know that the San Francisco Bay Area is not lacking in much. Uh, if you can afford the real estate prices, it's a great place to live, except for one thing. In the middle of all the great things to do and places to see, experiences to have, there are many among us who feel unseen, alone, unloved. So God has planted Cornerstone right here, right now, to represent him and meet this basic human need. 
to be seen, to be loved. We talk a lot around here about mending the fabric of the Bay Area. Well, love is the needle and thread. Our message is simple. There is one creator God who is a loving heavenly father. He, 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 he is defined by this word, agape, love. Uh, it's a Greek word. It defines everything that God does. Now, the Greek authors had different words for love, and agape was not the one that they talked about very much. Yet you would hear plenty from them on the topic of brotherly love, phileo, uh, or romantic love, eros. But it wasn't until the New Testament when agape was unpacked in Greek literature. Agape, the unconditional, unstoppable, unexhaustible, perfect, love that God has. It's, it's not just something that he does. It's who he is. It is his essence that he freely shares with mankind. Once Paul was arrested by God's love, he began to travel through the empire telling anyone who would listen about his God. When he got to Athens, uh, his God at first glance appeared to be one of many. Take your pick. Uh, you could have, there's one of the, uh, the highly educated Athenians were also extremely idolatrous, which Luke tells us in Acts chapter 17 was, was just, Paul was flummoxed by this. How could these, these, these highly educated, intelligent people worship something that had been made by stone? You can read his sermon in Acts 17, where he says, I've noticed that you Athenians are very, very religious. You cover all the bases. I even noticed you have an altar to the unknown God. Well, this is the God that I'm going to reveal to you now. Not a God made by human artisans and placed in temples. No, my God cannot be housed in a temple. He is the Lord of heaven and earth who made the world and everything in it. Your God seems sort of needy, requiring constant attention. My God, he doesn't need anything. He provides everything we need, starting with our own breath. And my God does everything he does with one motivation, that people would seek him, that they would reach out for him, uh, that they would find him even though he's not far from each one of us. For it is in him that we live and move and have our being. Paul spent some time unsuccessfully trying to persuade these fickle Athenians of God's love for them. Soon he gave up and moved to Corinth, where he found much more success getting folks to believe how, how, how completely they were loved by this God. This love transformed the Corinthian Christians as much as it transforms us. When we open up and receive agape love, it redefines how we feel about ourselves. And soon it redefines how we treat everyone else. With God's love, we are able to love both people who are easy to love and then those other people. My friend Mark calls them the EGRs, extra grace required. <laughs> but before anyone can love anyone, 
like God loves them, that person must first receive God's love from God. You can't give out something you just don't have. You cannot imitate Jesus without Jesus coming into you and changing you. It was Pastor Rick Warren who helped us all find our purpose, coaching us by saying things like this. The first purpose of your life is to be loved by God. So I have a question for you today. How are you doing with all this love talk? I mean, you come to church and you expect the pastor to bring up love a few times. We've been talking it now for four sermons where love is just about the Every other word that we say, Billy's given it his best shot. Steve has given it his best shot. I've stood up here and give it my best shot. How are we doing? We've got two sermons to go before we wrap it up. My question for you is, how is it affecting you? Have you taken time to do more than come and listen? Has it caused you to ponder the anatomy of love as Paul describes it in 1 Corinthians 13? Are you one of those that's memorizing it with us? Have you discovered that it's easy for you to receive God's agape love? Or are you one of many among us who are confessing that it is actually a struggle for you to believe or to allow God to love you with a forgiving love before you feel like you deserved it. A patient love when you know you're being an absolute buckethead. (laughs) An inexhaustible love, even though sometimes you get exhausted trying to love that other person that's so hard to love or trying to love yourself. Hmm. Are you one of those who, like me, read 1 Corinthians 13, verse 4, verse 5, verse 6, and verse 7, and wonder, am I ever going to get there? When you do good things, do you then automatically kind of think, well, there I go. Okay, now God will love me more. Now I'm deserving it. You know, they say that if your parents didn't soak you in unconditional love, you will spend a lifetime struggling to trust it even when it's real, that God really does love you for you. He loves the you that is you today, not the someday you. You know that, don't you? Is it difficult to receive it or have you found it easy that God is a father who loves you just because he loves you? Turn to your neighbor. And with an incredulous, credulous look on your face, say, guess what? God loves you. I know. Crazy. If you've never been loved with unconditional love, it can feel unreal. I mean, why would he love me when I haven't earned it? Maybe you're one who prayed a sinner's prayer years years ago, and it was easy for you to pray a sinner's prayer because you viewed yourself as a sinner. Maybe you've been a believer for a long time, but since we started unpacking 1 Corinthians 13, maybe it has become evident to you that you do struggle to completely, totally, consistently allow yourself 
to be God's favorite. You're his favorite. If you were the only daughter that would ever let him speak to you as his father, he still would have come. He still would have died on that cross just for you. You are worth it just because you are loved by God for no, no other reason. Once again, I encourage you as you hear my voice and listen to these words to not only believe them, but to receive them for yourself. Receive his love again today. Let him love you to the full extent that God can love. Remind yourself, I have not earned this love, but I cannot do anything to stop him from loving me because he's crazy about me. Friends, I am quoting scripture to you with every sentence I am speaking. From Genesis to Revelation, the consistent is the love of God for his chosen people. And you are one of those people. He loves you more than you love yourself. If you'll receive his love, your feelings about yourself will drastically improve. Friend, you must really let God love you or you will never be able to love others as much as you want to love them, as much as they need to be loved. You will love them like people love. And in many ways, there's always a little, a little conditionality in human love. But with God, uh, love is just his love. Uh, before love is something you do, it has to be someone you've met. You can't learn to love by reading about it or by hearing the pastor talk about it. You learn to love well only by being loved well. And God loves well. So if you've been loved poorly in the past by people, you are at a disadvantage at first. But Jesus can catch you up. When Jesus loves you, he teaches you agape love. And as you receive this better love, you soon become actually pretty good at giving it out as well. You'll find people here at Cornerstone who are very good at giving out love. Uh, you'd swear that they had a great childhood. But then you hear their stories and you discover that it was, for some of us, much later that we ever felt loved at all. Some of us have been through tremendous amounts of hurt. But God's love has healed us. One of the most lovely people in the Livermore congregation is a woman who was terribly abused as a child. But then she met Jesus who healed her by loving her. That could happen to you. Because agape love is a healing love. It was agape that motivated our father, God, to take drastic measures, sending his only son to planet Earth, Jesus, who told Nicodemus exactly why he had come. God, Jesus said, loved the world so much that he gave me to you. I am his one and only son, and everyone who believes in me will receive eternal 
life. Jesus came to earth in order to love us that much, to love us all, not just the religious, not just the morally upright. Jesus came to love us all, the sinners right along with the saints. And that idea was so confusing to the religious people. They stumbled over it. It was scandalous to them. The very idea of a God that loves sinful people was such a radical thought, it caused the religious rule followers to question everything about Jesus. He, he receives sinners, they would say. He, he eats with them. How can he do that? How, why would he stain his reputation? A, man's, a, a man is known by the company he keeps. Jesus' stubborn love of sinners stumbled the religious to those who thought that their behaviors had earned them a place at the table, Jesus was very confusing. Hmm. Then look who he picked to travel with, his students, the guys that he would be turning it over to. A group of flawed future leaders, to say the least. Being that close to Jesus, the perfect son of God, magnified their many faults because he is the manifestation of God's perfect and pure love. And they were anything but perfect or pure. We catch glimpses of this throughout the Gospels. Pick a Gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Pick one. If you're lazy, pick Mark. It's the shortest. <laughs> Read it and you'll see how patiently Jesus is and, and how patiently he operates on a day-to-day -day basis with these guys. In 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says love is patient, and we begin to see that Paul is just telling us who Jesus is. Lived out on those days when Jesus would open up and say something heavy like, hey guys, I gotta, I gotta, we just got to talk because we're getting close to Jerusalem. When we get to Jerusalem, it's going to be tense, and they're going to confront me, and then they're going to arrest me, and then they're going to torture me, and then they're going to try me, and then they're going to execute me. And then after I die, I will go and prepare a place for you so you can be with me. Now, if someone you loved said that to you, wouldn't you have a compassionate and sympathetic response for them? Oh no, their thought was nothing about how he was feeling. Here's what they said immediately after he said that. Okay, said James and John, we get it. And uh, this is a perfect time for us to ask for a favor. When you get to heaven, could you prepare a special, special place for me and John? Our mother is thinking that maybe we could sit on the left and the right of you in heaven. What do you think? Could you set that up? <laughs> right after the last night, they were arguing like this. They could have shown at least a little bit of outrage when he said, one of you will betray me. You know what their response was? It won't be me. Might be these other knuckleheads. I'd never do it. Won't be me. Well, Christ loved them anyway, and over time, they became something different 
And that's what's happening to you. They became those who led the Christians. They became those who wrote the New Testament. They became the martyrs who who gave their lives to the world because they had started to agape love the world. Hmm. How Christ loved them is how he's been loving you. He knows all your faults and he loves you anyway. Wow. That's crazy. You know, he knows everything you've done. He knows everything you will do. Yet he still loves you. Ignoring all the promises you've made him. All the promises you will make him. And you will break those just like you broke the last ones. Over time, Christ's love will transform you into someone who loves people like he loves. And you'll be around to witness it when you say, Why am I being so good to this person? Even when another person questions you, why are you being so good to this person? And your answer will be, well, I'll tell you this. Before I met Jesus, I was much different. But now I love. And this person needs my love. Wow. Now, for many of us, when we first got serious about receiving God's love, it had nothing to do with someone else. Uh, It was because we were in the middle of a mess. Many of us finally began seeking God's help because life wasn't fun. We wanted our circumstances to change, so we cried out to him. At first glance, our motivations for knowing God do initially appear overly self-focused. But even those inclinations to cry out to God in a crisis even a crisis you've gotten yourself into is fine with God. He doesn't hold it against us that we waited until we needed a rescue. He sees us much like a new parent sees her little baby crying out. Our crying out to our heavenly father in the middle of a dark time is like a newborn crying out in a dark nursery in the middle of the night. Newborns can't explain what they need, but they can make a lot of noise. And they learn very quickly that that noise gets them what they need. And a loving mother will never fault her baby for that, for needing her. A loving mother loves it that she's needed. Maybe you're like that little child in that dark, dark room today. You're afraid. You can't remember who's out there to help you. You need something. There's nothing wrong with you crying out to God like a little baby. He's fine with that. What would be wrong would be not to cry out. What would be wrong would be not to ask for his help. I would go as far as to say that's offensive to a God who has done so much to provide for all of our needs that we not access that on a regular basis. Let me ask you something. Is it difficult for you to ask for help? Do you always try to appear to have it all together? You don't need any help? Why do you do that? Is it pride? Or is it fear? Pride would say, I don't need anyone. 
I especially don't need God. Fear would say, I may need him, but I'm afraid of what he'll want from me later. Well, I'm not sure if a person would come back later to collect, but I do know what God wants from you. He wants you to let him love you. That's it. He wants you to let him solve things. He wants you to let him change you into the human being that other people will think is pretty darn cool because you will become exactly who he created you to be once you let him love you. Hmm. Why do people treat God like he's wanting to take something from them when all he wants is to give them something? So as we've been saying, if you want God's agape love, it's yours for the taking. And here's what the Apostle Paul tells us it looks like. Some of you have been memorizing this. Love is patient and kind. It's not jealous or, or boastful or proud or rude. Doesn't demand its own way. It's not irritable. It doesn't keep score. It doesn't celebrate injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up. It never loses faith. It's always hopeful and endures through every circumstance. This is the agape love we receive from God, and this is the love we give out to those who deserve it and to those who don't. Jesus is patient, so we become patient. Jesus forgives, so we forgive. Remember it was Simon Peter who approached Jesus about forgiveness. Uh, he says, Lord, just out of curiosity, how many times? Not that I'm keeping score here. But let's say someone offends me and I forgive them. And then they offend me again. Let's say they, they, they steal from me, but I forgive them. But then say later, they lie to me, but I forgive them. And then later they lie about me but I forgive them. How many times would they keep this up before I wouldn't have to forgive them anymore? Up to seven times? Jesus responded, no, Peter, not seven. No, that's crazy. Seventy times seven. Now I read that, and I'm thinking what Peter is probably thinking. No sneaking way. He'd look at the Lord and say, Jesus Christ. <laughs> Lord. Nobody can do that. How could you forgive someone over and over like that? But then the Lord is thinking, Simon Pete, I'll tell you what, we'll make a deal. You just forgive people as many times as I've forgiven you this afternoon. <laughs> you know, I've been doing this lately. Whenever I start to lose patience with someone, I, I've asked the Lord to help me pause long enough to, to remember how, how, how hard it must be to be patient with me. Hmm. 
And then there it is. I have the strength to forgive again. Paul goes on. Love doesn't envy. Love doesn't get jealous. Instead of being jealous, love celebrates when something good happens to you that didn't happen to me. Hmm. Love also doesn't brag on itself. Not subtly, not blatantly, not obviously, not inobviously, not on social media, not verbally. Love doesn't boast. The word Paul uses here is puffs, <clears throat> puffs up, puffs up. Love doesn't puff itself up. Hmm. Never, it never promotes itself. Instead of pride, we imitate Christ in his humility. A humility Paul describes in a different letter, a letter to the Philippians. Paul says in Philippians 2, don't try to impress people. Be humble. Thinking of others as better than yourself. Have the same attitude that Jesus had, though he was better than everybody. Oh yeah, he was God. He didn't think that was something to brag about. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges Humbling himself in obedience to God. Paul goes on. Love's also not rude. It doesn't dishonor others. The, the Greek word is askemone. Uh, it, it just means behaving in an ugly way. Embarrassing yourself by treating someone else poorly. Even if they acted ugly first, you still don't respond in an ugly way. Even if they provoked you. Paul would say, or does say, agape love is very difficult to provoke. You say, well, I have every right to be upset. Sure you do, but where will that reaction get you? To be unprovocable, to be unoffendable, makes you a very attractive person, a very Christ-like person. I mean, I love it in that one time when Christ gets really mad and he clears the temple. And the reason I love it is one of the only times I really relate to one of Christ's emotions. Uh, but he only does it once. On every other day, Christ is so easily not offended. You know, he wasn't even offended when the men nailed him to a cross. That didn't offend him. He even said to his father, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Don't be offended by these guys. They just, they don't understand. You know, I was thinking about this. People are so offended these days. People get offended so easily. Have you noticed that? People are way more touchy than they were 20 years ago. I don't know what happened. They're just, everybody's on edge. They're like, well, I'm offended by that. Wow. <laughs> They'll make you another coffee. Just ask. If we're easily offended, we are just like everybody else. And Christians are called to be different. When people notice that we don't swing at every pitch, we don't respond to every Instagram troll or every weird thing somebody says, uh, then we stand out as being different. Uh, uh, I wish Christians everywhere would start bucking this I'm offended trend. It would make us so different. Now, I'm not encouraging you to be a doormat. Uh, I'm just asking you to consecrate your irritation to God. Before you react, ask him if it's worth it. Ask him if it's 
something he would have reacted to. Ask him if it's about righteousness or you just got your toes stepped on. Ask him if he can take away this angry reaction because you don't want to stuff it down. But could he replace it with a better response? Now, he, one response is he may have to show you how to set a boundary between you and that obnoxious person that keeps offending you. But Jesus' attitude to their face would still be, Father, forgive them. They don't know what an idiot they are. <laughs> but they're not going to hear it from me. Hmm. One thing I've discovered is I'm really impatient with myself. And when I'm being impatient with myself, I'm always impatient with others. If I would let God be patient with me, I would have something in reserve for someone else. Uh, Paul also says it like this. Love is not easily angered. That's what one of the translations says. That's, that's my hardest one on this list. You know, it's weird. As long as I walk with the Lord, I still can flare at an instant, depending on the topic. Um, I can go from nothing to angry to really mad within seconds. Um, uh, if, you, if, if you, in this week's episode of, of Beyond Sunday, you know, we record this podcast now that, that unpacks more of the sermon called Beyond Sunday. It's on YouTube. You can find it. Just go to YouTube and to Cornerstone Fellowship Beyond Sunday. And in this episode, I tell a story of playing golf this last year, uh, recently, not, not long ago. And this drunk golfer behind us did something so offensive to us that I'm not kidding. I wanted to fight the guy. My son was there. My nephew was there. They saw a side of me. My son's seen that side before. But uh, they're like, Dad, really? Uh, but I, I, I had no love in my heart for this guy. Zero. I wanted to hurt him. And uh, uh, I realized later, wow, his behavior was ugly. But I was supposed to be full of another spirit. And I just acted just like the guy. And I had to confess that to the Lord. I said, and I confessed it to the guys. Guys, I know you laughed. You thought it was really funny. It's not funny. That's not the man I want to be in front of my own son. Yeah. I was glad my grandson wasn't there. Um, that's all I'm going to say. You got, you got to listen to the podcast. That's my cheesy way of getting you to watch this podcast <laughs> to hear all the details. Paul goes on. Love doesn't insist on its own way, you control freak. <laughs> Love lets the other person be in charge. Love is never demanding, never forcing the issue. We love people even when they don't do what we told them to do. Because we have stopped long ago putting conditions on our love. We don't make people pay for our love by obeying us. Love keeps no record of wrongs, which means it doesn't keep score. If I love you with agape love, then you don't owe me anything for something you did in the past because I forgave you in the past, meaning I'm not bringing it up again. And uh, if it comes up again, that's my problem, not yours, because I didn't, for some reason it came up again. I got to deal with that. But I don't, I, you, you don't keep long lists. See, that's the problem. If there's just a few offenses, it's much easier to forgive. But if you got this long list, it gets to the point where it's like this person is just completely uh, out of your grace and uh, you can't forgive. Um, so I say, uh, forgive early and forgive often. 
uh, and don't keep score. And there are people who will never let you forget if you ever were wrong in a conversation. Do you know anybody like this? Before he gave his heart to Christ, my grandpa Joe was, was the poster child of unforgiveness. If you ever offended him, he would remind you of that. Uh, and I, I never was on the other end of that. I was his only grandson, and I, could, I walked on water as far as he was concerned. But I heard stories. I'll, t- I'll tell you one of, the, of his unforgiveness stories. The person he was worse to, guess who it was? Not my mom, his wife. And his wife, Iva, and she would give it back to him too. She was a pretty tough old bird. But uh, the story goes that when they were younger, they were driving down the road, Southern Colorado, kind of out in the prairie, and they drive by, and there's four or five uh, pheasants just on the side of the road. No big deal. They're driving along. He says, hey, did you see those pheasants back there? And she said, Joe, you old, those aren't pheasants. Those were, those were uh, guinea hens. And he's like, yeah, they're pheasants. You don't know what a pheasant looks like? Well, I know what a pheasant looks like, Joe, but those were guinea hens. They went back and forth, back and forth. Pheasant, guinea hen, pheasant, guinea hen. Finally, he said, I'll bet you a silver dollar that you're wrong. And out of her purse came a silver dollar. And she held it up and said, turn around. They turned around and drove back. And from what I understood, it was miles now got back and found that little flock of birds, agreed that it was the flock of birds, and then looked closely, and guess what? He was right. He snatched that silver dollar out of her hand before she could put it back in the purse, and he put it in his pocket. And from that day forward, he carried that silver dollar in his pocket. I kid you not. And whenever they would get in an argument... He'd say, Iva, are you sure? And he would pull out that silver dollar. Part of my inheritance was, because I knew the story and thought it was hilarious, he gave me the silver dollar before he passed. Can you see Lady Liberty there? Hardly. He wore her out as he wore his wife out with un forgiveness. You know what's crazy? I have this, and whenever I'm feeling for some reason impatient with Brenda, the Lord will remind me to find this thing, and it's never hard to find because I always put it, and I'll put that in my pocket, and I'll just carry it around for a day or two, and it does the trick because that's not the man I want to be, but Jesus has had to show me his patience with me and then said, Steve, aren't you glad agape love doesn't keep score. So now go agape love your wife. And I say, okay. All of this to say this, or we'll just say what the way the apostle John said it in 1 John 4, the way you know if a person is a Christ follower is to observe how well they love. You know, in 1970s, we sang a song that said, they will know we are Christians by our love. That's still how people watching us know for sure that we really are who we say we are. The people who live in your house are watching you. They know your flaws. But you know what redeems all your flaws in their eyes? Is if you show them love. 
If you show them real love, a love they don't have to pay for. The people at work, they're watching you. They know you're not perfect, but you know what redeems you in their eyes? You show them love. If you figure out what it is that they need and you provide that for them, not because you have to, but because you love them. Hmm. And how exactly do we learn to love like that? We start by receiving so much of God's love that it just floods out any competing emotion or thought or word that might come out of our mouth. You learn to love by being loved. You could become the most patient, the kindest, the humblest, most selfish, selfless and peaceable and forgiving person. We all could become like, we could become thousands and thousands of Jesus-type lovers. And that, my friends, will repair the fabric of every neighborhood, every school, every business, and every dysfunctional family. Love is a healer. Let's pray now and help us to ask God to help us. Lord, I think of the person who finds it very hard to receive love because of how poorly they've been loved. And I ask you to heal them. I pray for those of us that have needed a refresher in this because we became the Christians who knew a lot of Bible verses but had forgotten how to treat people. Lord, I pray for the testing that's in some of our lives where there are those that are treating us in most unloving ways. We have every right to respond in ugly ways. But Lord, we, we ask you to take those rights out of our hands and help us somehow, some way, to respond like you would. Lord, fill us with your very personality and do it in such a way that makes us pleasing to other people. Not pleasing to you because we already are pleasing to you. You made sure of that and you already paid the price so that we could feel unconditional love. Help us, Lord, to receive it and give it out in this unloving world that we live in. And all God's people said, and I love you. I do.